Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandy Scilace, Editor-in-Chief, and today I have Professor John Wright. He's a doctor and epidemiologist with a background in hospital medicine and public health in both the UK and in Africa. He established and leads the Bradford Institute of Health Research, and he's a writer of a number of fascinating books, uh, the most recent one having to do with uh, the coronavirus doctor's diary, but also the Ebola diaries and magic in medicine. All of this makes him an extremely interesting person to talk to about ethics and disease and infectious disease. And we're so happy to have you on. Welcome. Well, lovely to be here, Brandy. So thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So, you know, there's there's so much going on. I feel like um, I'd originally asked you for some bullet points, but my head's exploding with all sorts of other things we could probably be talking about. Where would you like to start today? <laughs> well, um, uh, perhaps with the book, maybe. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So I, I during um, the pandemic, I, I've been I've been working with the BBC for a few years on a pro uh, on a a research project that I run called Born in Bradford, which is um, a longitudinal birth cohort study, which mm-hmm. follows up um, 14,000 children and their parents in Bradford in the north of England. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a post-industrial, poor, multi-ethnic city. About half our children of South Asian heritage and about 70% live in the poorest quintile for England and Wales. So it's that sort mm-hmm. of combination of diversity and deprivation, which is really fundamental to my values around addressing inequalities. Yeah. So we've been doing this large medical research study, health research study, and running our BBC series on radio on the radio for the last uh, 12 years. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'd... I'd had a sojourn in the in 2015 to go and run an Ebola treatment centre, and uh, since I've been working with them for a while, they said, "Well, you know what to do. You know how to hide, handle a microphone. <laughs> Off you go. Go and uh, make a series of <laughs> programmes for us on Ebola." So, which I, I did, um, and uh, in Sierra Leone, as I sort of worked there for three months, um, and then came back and carried on doing what I did uh, in Bradford. And then the pandemic came, uh, and it came mm. very quickly, as we know, yeah. uh, and uh, was, you know, a surprise to some people more than others, some mm-hmm. of our leaders more than some people on the ground, I think. Um, and all of a sudden, we were in lockdown, and uh, the and the media were separated from the health services in particular. And mm. and I and and my BBC producer rang me up and said, "Look, have you still got that?" recording apparatus that we gave you to go to Ebola. And, and being the BBC, they had never checked to whether they'd given it back. So I had this recorder. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I just started carrying around on the wards and uh, in my day-to-day work um, and talking to patients and talking to my colleagues and experiencing, you know, the fear um, mm-hmm. uh, as, as, as uh, COVID-19 hits these shores in the UK. Um, and uh, then as it retreated, the impact on, uh, on Bradford uh, as a, you know, as a deprived, uh, diverse city and, and its population and its communities 
Um, and, and, you know, the whole narrative of the different waves of the pandemic and our recovery out of it, you know, discovering new right. drugs, discovering new treatments, discovering vaccines. So, so we made a series of um, radio programs and podcasts and they became, at that time, they were really the only insight into what was going yeah. on. In, mm-hmm. in the um, in the NHS front line, and and that then turned into the book, which uh, is right. just out. Yes, um, it's just out in the UK. I, I don't think the US has its copy just yet. But I thought, uh, just for our listeners, on the attendant blog, there will be a, a transcript to this podcast, and also all the links that you need to find the book. So it, that is very exciting because um, it, it was a very chaotic time. And I'm sure it, uh, it it's still chaotic. Like, you know, some things in retrospect, you're like, ah, yes, now it all makes sense. But we're not really in retrospect. Everything's still kind of ongoing and there's still a lot of questions and people are concerned and some people have pretended it's gone and other people are still effectively in lockdown because of uh, autoimmune issues. And so I feel like just having a narrative to follow is, is really incredibly important. Yeah, I think one of the things that it's highlighted is uncertainty. And uh, we've all noticed how polarizing uh, the pandemic has been in terms of our views as to whether we wear masks or whether we take vaccines or not. You know, the the development of fake news that has stirred all these things up. And we've seen that polarization not just in our our populations and different people's views about it, but we've seen it in doctors and scientists as well, I think. Um, And um, part of it reflects our uncertainty. Um, you know, great uncertainty at the start, uh, more certainty as time went on. Um, but one thing I think we should reflect on is, is how we learn, how we learn to live with that uncertainty and provide an opportunity to accept it, to embrace it and to understand other people's opinions about it. So it's not that one, some people are wrong, some mm-hmm. people are right. It's just that, you know, we have to take different judgments on risks depending on our individual status. I'm I'm a death researcher, among other things, scientific researcher, but I, I do, my first book was on death and dying, and um, that makes you strangely popular when there's suddenly a pandemic. So one of the things I ended up talking a lot about when I spoke to podcasts or the news sources is that one of the things that has uh, that has died is our, our myth of the fact that anything's ever certain, because of course, uncertainty was with us before the pandemic but we were able to much more effectively ignore it. And so this idea that you can plan for tomorrow and next week and that you will know what will happen next year, that's an extremely uh, privileged view. It's also a rather ableist one because, of course, people who have disabilities or have autoimmune conditions, et cetera, their lives have never been able to be planned out in that fashion. So I think it's interesting that we must become comfortable with uncertainty, but the uncertainty itself isn't new um, so much as our sudden awareness of the uncertainty. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, actually, Brandy. And I think partly it's, it's the agents, the agent here, the, this new virus, which, mm-hmm. which just catalyzed that uncertainty. So that uncertainty is, is, is something we've adapted to over in many different contexts. But when, when a new mm-hmm. you know, virus comes along, we just don't know. And that just highlights our uncertainty and, and, and also highlights the polarization of views about different approaches, whether you're a sort of, you know, gun wielding conservative <laughs> or, a, you know, sort of neoliberal. I'm in America, so there's quite a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lots of guns. Yeah. Well, we have um, our own in the UK with Brexit. We have our own. Yeah. 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 But one of the things that's that's interesting to me 
there's a real dearth of understanding about infectious diseases anyway. I read a series for Medium about this, about what seems like the return of infectious diseases, when in fact, they don't go away. You know, you become vaccinated against them, but um, most of them have not been eradicated. But I think there's a, a real belief. I, I used to work in a medical museum in Cleveland. And one of the things that I encountered a lot were people coming to the museum and saying, well, at least we don't have, at least there's not polio anymore. At least these diseases don't exist anymore. And it, it just shows you how um, they've, they've really dropped out of public consciousness. Yeah. And, you know, this really has been the success of humanity as, um, as how we've conquered infectious diseases, communicable diseases, um, mostly through public health measures, you know, just mm -hmm. uh, having clean water and sanitation fundamentally, uh, better living conditions, uh, better education, all these, fun all these wider determinants are so fundamental. And then partly through, um, you know, antibiotics and effective vaccinations. And that's become, mm -hmm. as we conquered communicable disease, the, you know, the last remnants have been so effectively dealt with through you know, polio vaccination and smallpox vaccination um, and, and more effective treatments. Um, but they're always there and there's always going to be that threat. And there's always going to be, as we know, new agents. And, and it's always been um, a potential for that. I, I think there's, there's other pandemics. Uh, which are related to non-communicable disease as well, which are important that we mm -hmm. recognise. Um, you know, the, the non-communicable disease, are, the second pandemic of non-communicable disease is killing far more people than communicable diseases in, in high-income countries. Um, and right. those are diabetes and cancer and common yeah. mental disorders. But, but they're much harder to deal with. So we can't, you know, you can't have a, a, a vaccine and you can't have a gold command to try and, or the urgency that we dealt with, COVID, for example. Um, and, um, but so much just as important that we start tackling these because they are fundamentally socially patterned as with infectious diseases. Yes, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, social decisions help in our understandings and, in, in, and our understanding of inequality also shape the way these things come together and how what, how often they you know erupt into our consciousness because i think a lot of times we'll hear about outbreaks in other countries and everyone just kind of goes well that's over there so this was a, a situation where over there became over here and i think that is something people were really fundamentally unprepared for psychologically yeah, yeah, we we just we're just we we accept that we we we're not used to having epidemics in Western countries, and and uh, you know I've worked most of my professional career in Southern Africa, in West Africa, um, dealing with HIV uh, uh, epidemics, cholera epidemics, Ebola epidemics, and my my last sort of big uh, my last major program was in Sierra Leone working um, with Ebola. And one of my colleagues, an MSF colleague, said um, the reason why we've, the West has taken this so seriously is that you don't carry poverty back to the West mm. of your foot. And um, mm. that's, that's why we suddenly we didn't want it to spread and we contained it. And the urgency went into that to stop it spreading to wealthier countries. And so mm. when COVID came along and it just came at such speed, and such transmissibility that we weren't able to control it, um, it just uh, overwhelmed us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it shows, I think, too, just the bubbles that we do still tend to live in. It is a global society, and yet there's places which are still quite isolated, and there's reasons for that, right? Um, other countries 
don't necessarily want. That's why we have problems with everything from immigration to all of this has become more fraught since the pandemic, because you're right. Um, it's, it's, it's poverty. It's, there's so many other pieces of this puzzle that lead to these pandemics that the white Western world often just ignores or has, it has been able to ignore. I mean, malaria is a good example of that, of a protozoal illness, which kills half a million African children every year. But um, we don't give it a slightest thought because mm. uh, we're, we don't get it in wealthy yeah. countries. Right, right. So it's, it's a, again, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the program is because we at Medical Humanities are very interested in issues of social justice. And there's just, this is just rife. It's rife with those concepts. And, and there's so much going on and so much about ethics that, um, you know, lessons that we learned, right? Early mistakes, things that happened in terms of poor communication, all kinds of things that have now led to other forms of strife, people not trusting the science, people feeling like it's all made up. I think that sort of the, the, the inequalities is quite fundamental. And, and, and I think the pandemic really did highlight what structural inequalities are going on in, our, in, in high income countries, um, as well as globally. Um, so, you know, infectious diseases, they spread where there's great population density and they spread where there's overcrowding. And in the US and the UK and Europe, um, these places tended to be poorer inner city deprived neighborhoods, which were most, most, most effective. When, 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 um, the pandemic, when COVID-19 started to spread from China, it came to the UK quite a lot through uh, Southern Europe, Italy and Spain. And we saw, you know, the images on the news of the crowded ICUs and the hospitals struggling to cope. Um, and uh, ironically, it was uh, the UK visitors from Southern Europe who are often on their skiing holidays that mm. brought the initial cases back, brought the initial cases back to my hospital. But quite often it was during that the half school half term break that people came back from their skiing mm. holidays in the Alps in Italy and France and and uh, and spread it and it landed on the shoulders of the poorest in those cities um and uh like Italy and Spain Brad has got a lot of um multi-generational housing mm -hmm. so you've got all the people who are most at risk of the harmful consequences of COVID-19 um living with the young people who are most at risk of transmitting it because they're the ones right. have the greatest contacts yeah, it, it's, it was so, and I, the other thing we've noticed, we've had uh, Alice Wong and other disability activists on that similar kind of thing happening in terms of people who are using care homes or who need, uh, who need in-home care, et cetera. You know, it, it's always affecting these very vulnerable populations. And that is a population that doesn't get a lot of airtime. So, you know, once it starts to hit the people in the middle and upper echelons, then it becomes something that's in the news. But what's what's really, I think, deeply provocative in, in your work is that while we start focusing on those communities, we're still ignoring the communities where it's often hitting hardest. Yeah, and, and that, it really, it, you know, this, this sort of spotlight came onto some of these communities during the pandemic. And we 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 were able to look at in this in Bradford running this cohort study born in Bradford we were able to get a, a very close line into what was going on in the in our families during during lockdowns um which was eye opening actually so um something like 15% of families had no garden um 30% had no access to 
parks. So, we, mm-hmm. so for a lot of the middle classes, uh, lockdowns became a place where you could spend more time with your family, exercise in the garden or go to the park or, you know, became what we tracked when we tracked our middle class families that their mental health improved during lockdown. But for everybody mm-hmm. else, you know, the more vulnerable, mm-hmm. those, um, even on furlough, just dropping their income by 20%. Uh, led to great economic food insecurity, great anxiety and depression, which spread across the family. Um, so, so you've got to you get this insight into what it's like to live when when um, life is precarious. And I don't think we, you know, as you say, I think a lot of the time these these families, these communities are hidden from public gaze, and often living precarious lives to begin with. Uh, where there is food insecurity or housing insecurity, and then something like this happens, and you know, it's it tips the balance in a way that they can't they typically can't recover for still haven't recovered from. Yeah. And and that, that trust, the loss of trust that you talk about is is much more prevalent in these poorer communities and in commun- ethnic minority communities in particular. And what we saw, uh, I, I've seen it, you know, going back to the late 80s in southern Africa with HIV AIDS. You know, the young men in the towns where I used to work, you know, used to say that, AIDS stood for American invention to discourage sex. They just no. didn't really thought this was some because you know a lot of the a lot of the aid health promotion campaigns were sponsored by American USAID, um, and they just thought this was a way of stopping them having sex. And we saw that in Ebola as well. During you know this sort of cuts uh, this when when you've got isolation facilities in particular where fake news comes up, you know white doctors mm-hmm. and patients with uh, to kill them. And we saw some of that also you know spread. Uh, during the pandemic, where poorer mm-hmm. and minority ethnic communities in particular felt disassociated, disconnected from healthcare and what was going on in hospitals because they couldn't visit, um, mm-hmm. and scared to scared to um, admit their families because you know rather see them die at home than go into hospitals where they thought we were doing you know bad things. And of course, because these are victimized populations, they're not you know it's it's not a made up threat. They're wrong about you know. The, things happening to them in the hospitals. But at the same time, they're sometimes right. You know, they are often uh, neglected by the health system. They they do have a loss. They have a reason to have a loss of trust. And so how do we how do we overcome that is a question I have, because I, I feel like uh, some of what you've shown in your work in the podcast and also in the book is that conversation and, and doing your best to reach across those boundaries is part of it. But, you know, these are communities that have every right to be suspicious. How do we how do we make how do we bridge that gap? Yeah, and and these were communities that were, while our middle class families and middle class parents and adults were uh, at home, working working from home, they were the ones. It was the poor intersection of society who were running the supermarkets, doing the deliveries, you know, staffing the wards in the hospital. So so you get this big social gradient in terms of who's actually protected and who's actually exposed to the virus. Mm-hmm. So, so that sort of um, paradox is, is you know, is, it, it's quite clear. If you're putting your life at risk while everybody else is sheltering at home, you do start thinking what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that structural racism that we know is so inherent in uh, all our societies, I think, came to the fore during during the last couple of years, uh, and, and but but also unfortunately fueled by fake news, and I think yeah. um, that's that was unfortunate. Um, so uh, you know the rise of social media and WhatsApp networks has allowed fake news to grow, which fuels people's 
you know, fuels people's um, sense of injustice. Um, so it's, you've got a population that's right for believing it, but uh, unfortunately makes the situation works in terms of right. accessing care, stops people um, getting vaccines. Yes, yeah. So it it's it seems incumbent upon us, I guess. It it seems to me that as scientists, as um, communicators, people at the intersections of medicine and the humanities, it's very incumbent upon us to be the ones to do the extra work. Um, one of the things I, I love uh, Alice Wong for was talking about how the disabled community is always, almost always expected to do the work of educating everyone else. And it really should be that the rest of the community works hard to educate themselves, to help the disabled community. And I feel like this is another situation where we can't expect the vulnerable to be the ones to do the extra work to get us there, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, 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 the paternalism in a lot of sections of society, whether it's health service or education is, um, you know, something that we need to continually break down. And we are doing a good job of that, I think, slowly and surely. Um, I think there's uh, the issue of uh, connections into different communities. So so the city I work in, Bradford, um, it's got maybe, it's probably 160 different languages spoken in the city. So, so it's a myriad of different communities. There's no one... Uh, major community that we should focus on. It's understanding all those different levels and all those different, having networks into all those different groups, being able to engage and listen and understand what people's fears are and what the barriers to access or vaccines or, or whatever it is. And address our, um, our for me, healthcare um, to, to meet those uh, and, and overcome those concerns. So, and, and some of that is, you know, so for example, running vaccine clinics in mosques um, and getting uh, religious leaders, imams, to be the first ones to get the vaccine. Um, some of it's role modelling as well, and you know, just making sure it's not uh, white doctors giving the messages to South Asian mm-hmm. patients, for example. It's about right. it's about getting that balance right. Yes, it's about talking with, hearing from, and not just talking at or about. And I think we're big proponents of that here at Medical Humanities, the journal. So I want to say to our listeners, if you're interested, this book is the Coronavirus Doctor's Diary, Stories from the NHS Frontlines, available right now in the UK. We are going to be putting links on our page. Available uh, in the US and Amazon, you'll be glad to know. And oh, I so. Oh, yay. Hurrah. <laughs> and we'll, we'll get those links up there, too. Fantastic. Um, the other thing that's really important, I think, is to recall that this isn't coronavirus isn't isn't the end. There's there's more things we we see newspapers every day talking about things like monkeys, pop, monkeypox or Ebola or the new Marburg virus that uh, was uh, that is in Ghana. Understanding how pandemics unroll in real time as we can from your book and from the podcast. Uh, it's just incredibly important, I think, as we prepare for what's coming next, because, you know, uh, the story doesn't really end. Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing that struck me, I, I, you know, working on in during the Ebola uh, epidemic was how similar it was to, on a, you know, mortality was high, it was a more severe disease, but how similar the challenges were, you know, this RNA virus that spread from bats, 
created this school closures and lockdowns and fear in society, but also led to the same problems of fake news and distrust mm-hmm. of communities in, in the sort of public sector in, in healthcare. So, so we're going to see that repeated. And COVID-19 has shown how susceptible we are. We need to be better prepared, which you know, we will be next time. But there will be new variants. There'll be, uh, there'll be new viral threats. And, you know, what's happening today when we're talking with the Marburg virus in Ghana, you know, the first cases of that viral hemorrhagic fever, which is very similar to Ebola, a nasty illness, um, but more containable, you know, because it's mm-hmm. less infectious. So. But we've got to get better at it. Yes, yes, we do. And we have to get better at understanding the, the ethics, the ethical implications and the injustices and the system, uh, systemic racism and other problems that we have. And so thank you so much, John, for being with us. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on. I feel like we're probably going to have to have you on again because this wasn't nearly enough time. Um, and to all of you, our listeners, thank you for tuning in and once more for being part of the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore BMJ.